0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning again. I am still up here. Uh, so Zach is, has been gone this past week. First, he was at General Assembly, which if you don't know, we are a church in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, which is our denomination, and General Assembly is the national gathering, Um, and we were thankful that Zach, as well as some of the pastors from La Travasia and some of the other churches, were able to go to that in order to vote on specific things um, and walked through a couple days of that. But we were also thankful that Zach was able to extend that and go and have some vacation time with family and friends, Um, and we are so thankful that he gets that chance to do that with his family. Uh, Unfortunately for you, it means that you get to look at me a lot longer and have to listen to my voice. But I am excited to be here with you this morning as we continue through our sermon series on Samuel. This will end up taking us all the way into Advent, believe it or not. Um, But it is great this morning. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 15, is where we're going to be. We're going to be talking about the rejection of King Saul. Um, And before we get started with that, I wanted to give a quick aside that if you've been following along or if you go back and read chapter 15 on your own, that there are some really hard topics within chapter 15. There are some things that we don't like to touch on. There are some things that take a lot of time to unpack, um, such as God who is gracious, not vengeful, who is loving, and yet commands the annihilation of a people. Or a God that is said multiple times in here, both does not regret, but also regrets. And there's a lot of tension in that. Um, And I wanted to throw those out there at the beginning because the reality is we are on a timeline here. Um, I know you don't want to sit there for hours and hours on end as we talk about these things. I know La Travesía would kick us out if we tried. Um, but we, I wanted to throw that out there as an invitation. So I understand that these are hard. I don't want you to believe that I'm skipping over them. I don't want you to believe that I'm avoiding them or that I'm hoping you don't notice. Um, I wanted to throw those out in order for you to see that as an invitation to come and talk to me if you're struggling with those things, how to reconcile with them. We may only scratch the surface this morning, and so feel free to reach out. My number, my email are both in the bulletin. Um, Zach's are as well. I'm not throwing him under the bus. He knows and is willing to talk to you as well. We are excited to walk through scripture with you guys, and we believe that it's a good way for God to know and show his heart to you through these hard things. Um, And we can also point you to literature of people smarter than ourselves. Um, But With that being said, we are going to spend the majority of our time talking about Saul's rejection. And Saul, if you have been with us, you've understood that walking through Samuel, he was a lowly Benjaminite um, and that God has elevated him to be the king of his people, the king of Israel. He has gone from a nobody and been elevated to a status that no other man had known before. He's the first ever king of God's people. And yet, and despite all these things, Saul continues to act in disobedience. Rather than acting in the grace that God has given him, Saul continues to act against God's will, be it through unlawful sacrifices, be it through not attacking the Philistines and trusting the Lord when he should, or be it even the last week when we talked about his irrational vow that almost led to him being willing to kill his own son. Saul has continued to act as a dog that is biting the hand that feeds him. Um, And being someone that has been bitten by a dog that I feed, uh, I have a lot of trauma with that uh, language. Uh, But the reality is, this is how Saul acts. And so I had a dog that reminds me a lot of Saul. His name was Zorro. Uh, If you know me, I love dogs. Uh, My wife and I have a dog that we still have with us named Chachi. Uh, He is a big goofball. We love him to death enough so that we were willing to fly him here when we moved down here. But he is not our first dog. Uh, Our first dog was Zorro. He was a dog that was one that I loved dearly. He was super smart, super athletic, um, and when he was sweet, he was the sweetest dog I have ever known in my life. Uh, The problem with Zorro was that he also wanted his own way quite a bit. Um, Constantly attacking other dogs, constantly attacking other people. I have been bit more times than I can count, Um, and almost all of those at the beginning were me trying to step in and pull him off of another dog or another person, and he would stop. He understood when he saw me, this is my owner, this is who I listen to, I'm done. Like that was how he acted, and it was great for a time. But there was one incident that I remember very vividly um, that really changed a lot of that. It really exposed how Zora was turning away from my ownership. Um, And it was a specific incident where our Dog Chachi, as a puppy, would constantly bother Zorro, and he would get attacked. And so this was another one of those innumerable moments. And Zorro went after him, and I grabbed Zorro by the back legs and kind of tossed him to the side, um, as had become protocol. Um, And usually he would stop, he would look at me, he'd see me in front of him, and he'd be like, all right, I'm done, I'm not going to bite him, this isn't who I was attacking. Um, But on this specific incident, one night in Alabama, I threw him to the side, and he stopped, he turned, he looked at me, saw me, and he reloaded, uh, lunging at my face and my neck, ultimately latching on to my forearm and biting down as hard as he could. And this was a moment of extreme pain in my own life, not just because it really hurts when a dog bites you, but also because it really exposed Zorro's motives. It exposed that he didn't want to be my dog, that I wasn't in charge, that he was no longer going to listen. And so this is similar to what we're seeing from Saul in chapter 15. You see, Saul is turning away from God through his disobedience. It's another act of disobedience, but it's one that really reveals the motives of his heart. And it's a heart that is no longer attached to God, but it is attached to idolatry. And even in his idolatry, Saul is going to double down once again in his sin in an unrepentant spirit. And so God will reject him. And we will see that even in God's rejection... It is his revealing of his own unchanging heart and love for his people. And so those are the three things we're going to look at this morning is Saul turning from God to idolatry, Saul's unrepentant spirit, and God's unchanging heart for his people. And so I invite you to stand this morning as we read God's word out of reverence for it. Uh, We will be reading 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 31. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord." And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from, your, from you this day and has given it to you, the neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Now we jumped in a little bit into chapter 15, more on... Saul being confronted on his disobedience, but if you were to go back and read the first 10 verses, you'll see what Saul has actually done. You see, God has given him a command uh, that was pretty explicit. It was, hey, I need you to go and destroy the Amalekites. You see, the Amalekites were a people that had attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt long ago, and God had declared that they would be punished. And so he tells Saul to go enact that punishment. He is giving them their judgment. And in their judgment, God says, I need you to go and kill all of the people and all of the livestock. It was very clear. And yet, Saul, as he so often did, goes a little bit rogue and defies God's command. You see, Saul actually goes and he kills all the people but one. He keeps alive King Agag, the king of the people, the king of the Amalekites, and takes him as captive. And he doesn't kill all the animals, but instead takes the good ones for, for themselves, for the Israelites. And instead, it says in verse 9 that he only actually killed what was despised and worthless. And so we see God coming in and judging the actions of Saul, and he says that he regrets that he made Saul king. And now this word regret is a word in the Hebrew that can be translated as regret, but it also can be translated as repentance. And it is not God feeling sorry for himself. It is not God upset about uh, what he had made a mistake Um, but it is him changing his ways. He's changing his relationship with Saul as a result of Saul's actions. You see, he's changing that he made Saul king and rejecting him as the king of Israel. And if you know anything about Samuel, this may be hard to hear because we understand that the book of Samuel has a lot of comparisons. Ultimately, Samuel is trying to lay out that Saul was a bad king, but ultimately there's a better one coming in King David. And then when you compare the two, it feels a bit unfair that this is why Saul gets rejected. There's many even biblical scholars that really wrestle with this question of why would Saul be rejected? It just feels unfair. David, if you know anything about him, he's an adulterer and a murderer, and yet God allows him to remain king. And yet we look at Saul when he is rejected. Saul's sin here is that he didn't kill the last guy. He didn't kill enough animals. And so I think all of us in our heart, if we're honest, is saying, this is not right. God is not being just. But the problem with us and our own judgment of this scenario is that we don't understand what's going on in each of these men's hearts. You see, we're actually going to hit it probably next week in 1 Samuel 16, the verse that so many of us remember from Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when God looks at Saul's disobedience here, he doesn't just see the outward action of him going against God. He sees that as a rotten piece of fruit. But God is staring at a tree that's been dead for a while. You see, he understands that Saul's motives are not just disobedience just wantonly, but it is his desire to be in charge. It's ultimately idolatry and we see that pointed out by the prophet Samuel. We see him confront Saul, and Saul says, well, look, you can take, we're going to take all these animals for sacrifices anyways. It's fine. It's all going to God. He'll be happy. But Samuel says God doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. He wants your heart, because anything that is not full obedience to God is rebellion, it's idolatry, it's divination. It's the worship of another God. And that's the reality that Samuel exposes here, both in Saul and in our own lives, that anything that we do that is not fully 100% obedience to God exposes that there is a God in our hearts that is more important. You look at what Saul did. He went 90% of the way, right? He's almost there. But what changed his mind to stop for that last 10%? Why didn't he go the rest of the way? There had to be something else speaking into his life that he valued more than the word of the Lord. And see, for Saul, that person was himself. Saul was worshiping the God of himself when he did these things because everything he did was meant to make Saul look really, really good. You see, he keeps all of the good animals. He keeps all of the good livestock, whether it's to amass the wealth or whether it's to curry favor with the people that he gives them to. He keeps Agag, the king, as his own slave, To show all the other kings around that how great is King Saul. He can say, look, you have slaves, but I have a king that's my slave. I'm great. And then if you caught what he did on his way to Gilgal, he stopped at Carmel and put up a monument to himself. Saying, look at King Saul and how he defeated the Amalekites. You see, Saul was ruling his own life. Saul's word was more important than God's command. His disobedience exposed the God of his heart was the God of himself. So what happens when we look at our own disobedience? When we fail to go 100%, what is the God that's living on your heart? How about when God says to love your neighbor as yourself and you're going, I love my neighbor, my neighbors are great, except for the one guy down the street. What's wrong in that picture? Why not that person? Or how about when God tells us to raise up our kids and disciple them, but you avoid that one topic of conversation, that one passage of scripture because it's too hard or too challenging, or it really just you don't want to talk about it? Or what about those little sins in our lives, right? We tell ourselves that they're not that big of a deal, be it your habitual pride, your love of money, whether it's your lust or any act of disobedience. We think all these little things that they're not that big of a deal, right? We just fall into these little acts of disobedience, and they're not half as bad as something else that goes around, on around us but the reality is those little ones are the fruit. They're they're showing a symptom of a greater disease, and that's the disease of idolatry that's in our heart. And if we're not willing to dive deeper into that, if you're not willing to see what God you're worshiping, it makes it really hard to turn from them, truly repent, and turn back to God. And that's what Saul is being exposed in here. He's exposed that his God is himself, and he's not willing to turn around. You see, that's the problem is it's not just that he's idolatrous. Because if it's just about idolatry, then we're all in trouble, right? We've all got our own little gods that we turn to so frequently. We all have our own little sins. And yet we're able to turn back to God in full repentance when we expose those gods of our hearts. But the problem is not just that Saul's idolatrous, but that he has shown an unrepentant spirit. And we see this in his reaction to when his sin is exposed. You see, Samuel comes and exposes your idolatrous, your worshiping other gods, your rebellion is as divination and idolatry. But when he's exposing his sins, Saul only wants to be defiant that he's even failed. He said in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission. I have brought Agag. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Samuel, I've done everything right. We're good. But the people are the ones that took of the spoil. He says, I've done everything right. If anything's wrong, it's got to be what they did. And I'm sure as he mutters these words, he's realizing that Samuel's also just told him, hey, you're the king of Israel. Everyone that does something only does it because you let them do it. You're in charge. You could have told them not to, and you chose not to do that. So at best, he's still guilty. And so he follows that up with, they took of the spoil, but it's still for God. We'll be fine. It's all good. You see, Saul goes in, and when his sin is exposed, he's already already trying to claim his innocence. He's blaming other people, and he's defiant that there's any failure. But notice he finally admits that he's sinned. And Did you catch why he admitted it? Samuel says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Only then, when Saul's rejected of his kingship, does he... Openly admit, yeah, I've sinned, I messed up, I'm sorry. Saul's not really repentant of his sin. He's repentant because he wants to keep his power, his throne. Everything that he's invested himself in is all about himself being king, being the guy. Saul is fearful of losing that power. And this is the moment that we're exposed to the difference between Saul and David. You see, while we talked about David is also sinful. David is also exposed by a prophet named Nathan in the same way that Samuel exposes Saul. And David also, just like Saul, begins a confession that says, I have sinned. But the difference is how each of these kings follow up that sentence. You see, David in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord, period, period. There's no claim of innocence. There's no standing on his own merits. There's no look at what I've done before. It is simply, I have sinned against the Lord. He's admitting that he's deserving of judgment and he's throwing himself at God's mercy. But then we see Saul in verse 24 says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now if you notice, that really reflects an imagery from the garden, from Adam and Eve. Adam, when he's confronted in the sin, he says, yeah, I ate of the fruit, God, but it's because that woman you gave me, she gave it to me. Saul's telling Samuel, and as a result, God here, he says, I've sinned here, I did wrong, but it's because of those people you gave me. That's why I sinned." He's admitting he's wrong, but he's placing the blame somewhere else, saying, yeah, I did something wrong, but ultimately it's because of somebody else's problem. Unlike David, who falls at God's mercy, Saul is standing up for himself and trying to claim righteousness, even in the midst of his sin. You see, Saul only wants to retain his power, and he's not worried about transgressing God himself. And it's really evident when you look at the next confession. Samuel rejects this first one and says, Saul, God has rejected you. And so Saul comes again in in confession of sin, But if you notice, read the words that he says. The pronouns really give away his heart. For Saul, it's always about the pronouns. It's about the little words and how his heart is reacting. He says in verse 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He says it's my people, but it's your God, Samuel. You see, Saul has rejected not just the Lord's word, but he's rejecting the Lord as his God. And as a result, God is rejecting him as king of his people. But I think when we look at Saul, it's so so subtle in how we see his repentance and his unrepentant heart. And I think it's worthy of us looking at and saying, how do you react when your sin is exposed? How do we react when we are confronted with our sin? Do you act like David? Do you fall at God's feet in mercy, admitting, yes, I've done something wrong? Or do you constantly run to the act of Saul and say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that big of a problem. It's not as bad as this person's sin over here. How do you react in your confession? This is why we confess each week in our confession of sin together. We're admitting that all of us are sinful. Every single person in this room, I have sinned, you have sinned, we've all transgressed the word of God. And so we come each week in confession of sin that we are all deserving of judgment. We are all deserving of death and we're coming before God standing only at his mercy through Jesus. And that's the beauty is when we fall at his mercy like David, we're assured that as his people we are forgiven. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins. This is the difference between David and Saul, isn't it? David comes in humility. He says, I have sinned before the Lord. He's turning from his sin and turning to God's mercy, and as a result, the prophet Nathan is able to tell him, God has removed your sin from you. And then we look at the difference with Saul's pride. I haven't done anything wrong. Somebody else is at fault. Oh, well, I lost my kingship. I should probably say I'm sorry. He's coming pridefully, and he's unwilling to turn away from his wickedness. And as a result, he is rejected by God as king. And this rejection is a hard story to hear because it's God's leader. It's the one that he put in charge of his people, and we see such a great man fall It makes us fear for ourselves, doesn't it? We're thinking, how can I be better than Saul? How can I act like David and humbly come before God? What if God doesn't like me anymore? What if he rejects me like he rejects Saul? And the beauty is that Scripture assures us that as his people, when we humbly turn, we're okay. But we can also know that from this story that God's unchanging heart is a love for his people. While it might seem and stick out to us as him being harsh, the reality is God rejecting Saul is gracious to his people. It's a loving act. God is unchanging in his love for his people. And I'm sure there's a lot of questions that shoot off in some of your minds when I say that God is unchanging in this passage because it says multiple times, God regrets that he makes Saul king. And while this repentance of God is a change of situation in response to Saul's own change, we can go deeper than that. The reality is that this is a word in the Hebrew that carries such emotional distress. It's a word that really displays God's heart for his creation. God is really hurt in this moment that Saul has turned, that Saul is unrepentant. God is really grieved by his sin. Now, don't take that to mean that God was surprised. God is not surprised by Saul's sin. God's not surprised by his disobedience. God knew that Saul would be disobedient in this moment. He knew that he would be unrepentant and he knew it long before he made him king. But the reality doesn't change that even though God knew it, it doesn't make it not sting. God is still hurt because he loves his creation. God is still a loving God. And the reality is God's sorrow doesn't change his rejection for Saul. He's not willing to look past it. And that's ultimately because while he may love Saul, even in his unrepentant state, God loves his people more. God loves his people more than anything else, and he's willing to go to great lengths to protect them. An easy way to think of this is thinking of that dog I told you about that bit me in the arm. So when he bit me, we didn't get rid of him. We still kept that dog for many, many months after that, many bites after that, many times of his disobedience. I still loved that dog. But we don't have that dog anymore. You see, the one thing that changed wasn't that he went one time too many, wasn't that he showed that he would continuously be disobedient time and time again. The reality of the reason that he was rejected was a little girl named Ellie Joy. See, my wife was pregnant at that time, and so we knew that this is a bad situation. If the dog is willing to bite me, it will bite her. And so our daughter is at danger. And so being a father, you want to protect your children. You want to love them. You want them to be in a place where they can feel safe. And so I knew that that was not a place that Ellie Joy could be. And so we went through the painstaking process of driving Zorro hours away, dropping him off at a cattle farm and driving off, ultimately rejecting him as a part of our family. And that's how God is dealing with Saul here. We must understand that God is rejecting Saul as leading his people is a loving act. You see that God is not just a protector over outside forces. He's not just protecting them from the Amalekites and the Philistines, but God is protecting his people from anyone that would turn their hearts away from him. He knows that if Saul were to remain king, that the people would be turned away from God, and he wants to retain his people as a good father protects his children. You see, he's willing to remove this king and give them a better one, one that will point them towards God, ultimately not just through David, but Jesus Christ. The glory of Israel. He's one who does not regret because he has no reason to change because he is perfect. He lived in full obedience and it allows us to know what it is to obey the Father in heaven. You see, unlike Saul, Jesus is our ultimate king and through whom we are regarded as righteous in the eyes of God. Though like Saul, we disobey, he was obedient in our stead. Though like Saul, we run after other gods, he comes after us as a shepherd, chasing down his sheep and bringing them back into the fold. And though we were unrepentant like Saul, he showed us how to repent through his blood on the cross that we might know forgiveness and that we might know him as the Lord of our lives and worthy of our obedience. The only question today is whether we see him as such. Do we see him as a worthy Lord of our lives. Do we see Christ, who is the Word of God, as one we're willing to submit to humbly? Or like Saul, do we reject the Word of God that is Jesus? See, if we reject Him, we can be assured of Saul's rejection. But when you turn to Him, when you confess your sin and humbly submit to Him as Lord of your life, then we are assured of mercy and salvation. That is why we follow up confession with the assurance of pardon. That as His people, we are brought to Him unwaveringly. We cannot be taken away because Jesus, as our King, holds us fast. And that's the beauty of it. That is why we can turn to Him anew, repent of our sin, find obedience through the Holy Spirit and through Christ Himself. That might we turn this morning and reflect more on what is the God of our heart. Might we turn from that anew, humble ourselves, and turn to God and find forgiveness for our sin, that we might be united to him and understand that he is here to protect us as his children all of our days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that even in Scripture that seems hard, even in Scripture that confuses all of us, God, that we know that you are able to be shown to be loving, that you are ultimately the God that has come down for us, that you are a God that even in places where we could not act perfectly, you did it for us, that we are not able to achieve anything towards salvation, but that you chose to do it all that we might know you, that you love us as your children, that you love us enough that we can turn to you time and time again and know that you are forgiving, know that you are merciful God, expose our hearts this morning. Allow us to see what it is that we are following greater than you. Allow us to see what words are being spoken into our mind that turn us away from your commands. And allow us to know what idol is sitting upon our hearts this morning. God, allow us to come back to you in true repentance, that we would not be trying to put up a fight against your condemnation, but that we would accept your judgment and seek only your mercy, because it will flow greater than the oceans around us. God, we thank you that you love us unconditionally as your people, that you protect us from not only things that we might see, but things that are unseen to us, Lord, that you protect us from even leaders that might take us astray, that you care enough about us to care about our sorrows and our grief. God, we pray this morning that we would come to you, that we would know you, that we would fall at your feet seeking your mercy and knowing we are assured of your grace. Only through Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen.